as a golfer, what is what is the connection between being a drummer and being a good golfer? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, there are quite a few connections. Um, the first connection, I think, is for me, drumming has always been about the uh, experience of the muscle memory and the visceral experience of playing relaxed and smoothly and getting into a groove, you know, and, and you can tell when you're struggling and you can tell when it feels really good and smooth. And I mean, you know, there's the musical element and there's the intellectual element, but there's a physical element too. And I think golf is a, all those similar qualities to it because you have to make, in, you know, intellectual and golf decisions, but then you've got to be stretched and comfortable and make the move. And it's kind of like visualization too, because I, I visualize music. I'll pretend that I'm at a big concert hall and I'll kind of squint and play at my house, but I'm there. And in golf, you can kind of visualize a successful shot. And if you're really confident about it, you can maybe pull it off. So when you're visualizing golf, or no, actually, what's, what's a golf moment that you can, like a, an amazing golf moment that you've had that you can share with us? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> golf stories are usually really boring and people tune out pretty fast. But I remember a friend of mine saying to me uh, in Las Vegas, we were playing with Anne-Marie all the time. And so we were getting kind of, you know, reasonably competent at it. I could never say we were very good. But we were on this particular hole and the shot was about 200 yards over water. And I would never have the courage to do it. And he said, hey, listen, we're almost done. You just might as well go for it. And I, I thought, you know what? Why not? What do I, I mean, I'm not getting paid to do this. And I can't lose anything. So I did it. And I think that was the key. I just didn't care. And I relaxed. And I visualized it actually happening. But if it meant something, it never would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking with Gary Craig, drummer extraordinaire who's played with tons of people including Anne Murray mm -hmm. and obviously has played golf with Anne Murray um, and it's it's my pleasure to have you here talking to us about your life and, and music how did you decide to become a drummer uh, my father uh, he didn't like sports and uh, he didn't like camping in the outdoors and so you know he was kind of a city guy and uh he really just basically did his work. And when he got home, he was so tired, he didn't really want to do a lot of games or anything with us. So he would mainly just talk about drums or music. And he kind of told me when I was a little kid that he played drums, but he never actually had drums. But he said, I've got great rhythm. And he used to brag about that. And he'd get out the dinner knife and he'd kind of tap along to these big band music, uh, songs on the radio when I was very young. And so I thought, well, gosh, that's the coolest thing about my dad. I mean, maybe I have rhythm. Hmm. I mean, if he does, I guess I do. So I just kind of wandered around thinking that I did. I didn't know if I did or not. I just thought I did. So when I saw a friend of mine get a set of drums in grade eight, I kind of thought, well, gosh, I've always had rhythm. I should just go over there and try it. <laughs> <laughs> and I really didn't know if I did or not. And so, um, and with that kind of strange sense of confidence about it, I, I learned how to play Wipeout and played it on a school desk with a guitar player in front of the grade eight class. And uh, that was our little project. And I didn't feel all too nervous about it. It seemed to work out. So that's how it all started. Did you have a drummer that you liked? Was it like, was it, did you model after anybody? Was it influence? There wasn't really a drummer I liked because then 
you know, the Beatles and the Stones, they were they were on TV when we were kids, and I wasn't focusing on drums or drummers. So when we moved to Mississauga, and I think I was going into grade nine at that point, I saw a band at um, a high school outdoors, and it was uh, this band called Abernathy Shagnasser's Washington Band, and the drummer <laughs> was Gil Moore, who ended up becoming the drummer in Triumph, mm. creating Triumph, and then this massive studio and backline company. But um, he's the first drummer I actually saw play, and I just transfixed on him. And I thought he was absolutely amazing. Like, he really, really motivated me to want to keep going and do this. Did, you, did he have a big set then? No, he didn't. Okay. He was more of an R&B drummer, and he sang too. And he wasn't playing rock. And I always related more to blues and R&B style drumming, even though I didn't know that. I just... I liked it. There was something funky about it. And he had that quality. When he went to Triumph, he changed everything. I think it was more of a business decision mm-hmm. to get huge drums and play rock. But uh, he, he did actually, okay. He did very well, yeah. <laughs> and did you have, I presume you've worked with him. Well, here's the thing. Um, it wasn't long after I started drumming in high school and buying sets of drums and being in high school bands that I he lived in Mississauga as well. So I found a way to become one of his... Uh, crew guys as roadies when I was still in high school and uh, we were dragging around his gear and helping set it up and god it was amazing I'll never forget one time he uh, he called me and this was just after I was done high school but he said uh, um, he said he he wasn't actually playing in the band he was booking a band that's right he was doing everything booking bands and playing but he said this one this band I booked the drummer can't make it and I, I think maybe you should try it I think I'm going to give you your first shot. I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And uh, and it was actually another guy's band. And so that other guy called me back and said, well, we've had a change of heart. The keyboard player plays drums, so he's going to play drums. And I went, ah. Oh. But he says, I still want you to come out and help us set up. And I went, oh, okay, all right. So I came this close to actually getting my <laughs> first big, gig. Yeah. <laughs> but I took drum lessons downtown. Uh, through a guy named Lou Williamson who worked at Long and McQuaid and I took drum lessons uh, just very close to where the gas works is and uh, it was cool there were like three or four students in there I'd go like once every two weeks and at the end I'd go straight to the gas works and uh, see bands like Rush they were still playing there and it was amazing so So back then if you were to look at and I, I presume that you didn't have a career in in percussion in mind but how did you see you, you talked about being a, a blues bass drum drummer back then how did you see yourself as as what kind of a drummer well back then I, I i was only interested in i was practicing all the time and when i finished high school i uh i had a job at, at the lansing lumber mart and i said to my mom and dad i said look can i have a shot at at being a drummer uh, and making a uh, you know making a living at it and they said well I don't know, you know, that, that doesn't sound too safe or too uh, secure, but um, my father hung out with this guy who was a Hungarian violin maker and violinist. And he invited this guy over, Joe Baratti, to sit upstairs in the living room and listen to me play. And he was going to ask Joe, and he did. He said, you tell me if this guy has a shot at actually doing it for a living. And uh, if you say that he does then he can, I'll give him a year or so to see if he can get a job. But if you don't think he's got the talent, 
well, and I knew what was going on. And so I went down and played. And when I came up, Joe said, yeah, give it a crack. You know, you sound pretty good. And it, it was your dad's fault that you wound up getting into drums, wasn't That's it? That's right. <laughs> so I started playing, um, my first real gig was with um, the, these three blonde bombshells who did ads for Radio Shack, and they were called the Peaches. And it was anything but blues. It was just a, a real show band. Right. And there was a, a, an older studio owner who hired me on, and he was so uh, impatient with me because I was just an arrogant 21-year-old kid who thought I was great. And I thought, you know, I got to start somewhere. And he recognized all that, but I didn't. And so, but, you know, I, I did the job. I, I played at the Hook and Ladder Club, and I played all these really cheesy places with the peaches and and uh, I thought, well, this is what you have to do. And in Toronto, there were gigs everywhere, show bands. I played in show bands mostly for the first four or five years. What what year would this have been? Like, what time frame? I'm thinking that would have been probably 1979. Okay, so when you were starting to learn, did you have high school bands you played with? And There was one high school band I was in, and it was the coolest band. We had a really awesome guitar player and a, a, a very... Uh, style and bass player and we were a rock band we played uh james gang and we played humble pie and we played all that stuff wow and you know the whole idea was to get girlfriends you know but <laughs> how'd that work out well you know it was it was it worked out but it seemed so phony to me because the girls that wouldn't look at me twice all of a sudden once they saw our band they wanted to hang out and i and i was a little bit put off by that i thought you know just because i'm in a band now now you want to hang out with me you know this is a theme <laughs> that comes up a lot in this whole thing um so when you, so i i guess i'm curious as to you, you you're like a, a phenomenal studio musician oh, thank and, you. and you've played on so many albums and i was looking at the list of albums you played on and i think oh my god this is some of the albums i grew up with listening to so that's cool but how does how do you get to that point like do you like at what point from peaches to to becoming a studio musician or like because I, I don't know if you were directly connected with many bands initially yeah no i think what happened was it's an interesting question because um, you know the first few years i played uh, with these bands and covered tunes and 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 played with some really good musicians uh, who are older than me and they were giving me all kinds of direction and advice and so the idea was to kind of create your little network in Toronto and then the word gets out that if there's somebody a young person who I, I wouldn't have said that I was ever a really great drummer because I wasn't I, I mean really great drummers have all the technique and they've studied and everything else but I had I guess what people call a bit of a feel like I could play in bands and it felt it felt good to everybody they they thought well you know you're gonna you're gonna be fine you're gonna keep working and that kind of ended up what happened was because of the network you end up meeting people who who um in in my case after four or five years of playing around town they actually wanted to start a band and i ended up in this band that um was just experimenting with fusion music and original music and we sort of did it on the side we were all broke but we wanted to do it and we ended up getting a phone call from a singer-songwriter who had signed with Capitol Records who had heard us play and wanted us to be his band and be on his record. And that was kind of how the whole recording thing started. I was 25, and all of a sudden I was playing with this guy named Chris Hall who had a deal on Capitol Records, and we were making his record. I was like, wow. And then the next thing you know, they bring in a keyboard player to play on that record. 
And that keyboard player was David Tyson, who was working with Eddie Schwartz. And David phoned me and said, hey, I enjoyed playing with you, and would you be interested in playing on Eddie Schwartz's album? So all of a sudden, within three months, I was playing on two signed artists in the studio, and I was just 25 years old. I thought, gee, this is exciting. I loved the studio. So tell me about that, because that, that's... This, it's a totally different world to work in the studio and to do live performances. Mm -hmm. And I don't know... I, I presume that there's some musicians who are great live who are not very good in studio. And to have that discipline to be good in studio, I mean, that's where you become a total musician, I would think. So what was it like to actually go in the studio and, and be recorded for the first time? Well, at first you, you think that it's going to be great because you, you know, again, I, I, I was pretty confident. I mean, probably less confident now than I was then. I thought, God, when I play it, it sounds great and it doesn't speed up and it really feels perfect. Well, that's where you all of a sudden find out that maybe that's not the case. Even though people have told you that you're good and it feels good, then there's an, the next level of taking that to the studio where all of a sudden the engineer is giving you a really important lesson, you know, on the side. He's, he can tell that you're doing okay, but he's trying to help you out. And there was a guy from England who's such a mentor for me, uh, and Mike Jones, and um, amazing engineer from England who really was a mentor for me in the studio. He took me aside and he gave me all kinds of tips on how to be a good studio drummer, about timing, about the sound of the drums, about being consistent and accurate when you hit them and hit them in the same place every time. And, and I mean, I was nervous. I was very intimidated, especially by him and by the whole process. But he was nice enough and he recognized that I had the desire and a little bit of talent, I guess, to really help me along. And That's it was great because he wasn't a musician. He was a studio engineer. So I was getting some quality drum studio tips from him. But I mean, it does seem, I mean, it's common sense, right? If you, you hit the same place, you want that sound to be consistent. And, you know, you hear, what was it? Was it the Metallica movie where they wanted that bass drum on that one note to be repeated over and over again? Like sound is so important. So It is. But the thing is, is that when you're drumming at first like that, and you know your the song is four minutes long, and you haven't had that kind of experience. You might go go along fine for a minute and a half, and then for about thirty seconds you get distracted, or something happens. You come back from a fill, and the snare lands a little off center, and so it doesn't relate on the tape. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come back in that really solid spot, and it's like, uh. and then there weren't Pro Tools, so they couldn't fix it. So the whole idea was, you know, we're not using a click track. There's no Pro Tools. You've got to, the red light is on. You don't want to waste tape or waste people's time. You can't halfway through sort of fall apart and then come back. We'd have to start over again. So the pressure was, I think there, there was a little more pressure then even than now, you know. For sure. But did you find the, the advice that was given to you easy to apply? Well, it wasn't easy to apply. I had to take the advice and then practice it. Yeah, and a focus on it, you know. And so when I did my practicing, I would be thinking about that stuff and I would be really making sure that I, you know, focused on that when I was in session. And and through that, you got more work and more work. And yeah, I started to get a lot of recordings and, um, you know, and I, part of it is your attitude and part of it is your, your musical ideas and just how you get along with everybody um, and the sound of your drums. I mean, you know, and I'm not saying that 
that I had that down right away, but I was picking that up pretty quick. You know, I'd get to the studio early and spend time tuning them and getting them set up right. And, and then, you know, if, if you feel like there's an opportunity to contribute to something musically, you can say, speak up, you know, and, and whatnot. So yeah, there were a lot of cool things, but it started to take off pretty quick. I played on, uh, um, a band way back then, a band from Winnipeg called Kilowatt on their record, Dominic Toronto produced it and he hired me and it was pretty exciting. And, and then, um, Dave Tyson hired me to play on Atlanta miles record and on the arrows record. And all these things started happening. Then some jingles started happening and this was, God, I was still in my late twenties, you know, so it was pretty funny. And, uh, I don't know if I was even ready for it. I started thinking, boy, how far is this going to go? You know? And, and was it a surprise to you? Like, like, did you appreciate what was going on? Oh, yeah. And I, I certainly didn't take it for granted. But at the same time, um, you know, you, you're craving more of it. You're you're hungry for it. And you want to find out who the other people are that, 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 that do that and, and see if, you, if you're up to scratch with them. And, but if they're getting better gigs, why? You know, and it, it becomes competitive and it, and it sort of plays on your, your self-doubts a little bit, too. You might go hear one of your favorite players and and they kind of blow you away and instead of appreciating it you're sort of kind of humbled by it and you're back at home working away at it again you know which is probably why you're so good though the fact that you would go back and practice even more yeah you know these people motivate you and um and also people that i i I heard on records once i started recording then i was able to sort of hear the difference like i wasn't noticing how great they were maybe before then but after you've got your own stuff down and you can compare, it's like, oh boy. <laughs> can you give me an example of a drummer who, at that point, you, you would listen to on an album and think, that's what I want to emulate or that's what I want to go after? Well, yeah, back back then, I mean, even before I started recording people like Charlie Watts, you know, I still love his drumming and love the way he sounded on records. But, you know, when I was listening to, um, you know, the progressive bands, uh, like Yes, and then Weather Report, and all these amazing bands, and the drumming, and, and Herbie Hancock's drummer, Mike Clark. And then the guy I could really relate to when I started listening to Steely Dan records was Jeff Porcaro. You know, he played amazingly consistently and with great feel and precision and technique, but it, it, it had soul, and uh, he could play jazzy stuff, or he could play rock stuff, funky stuff, he could play everything, you know, so... He really motivated me too. And would it be correct to say that you're in that? You could do jazzy stuff. You could do progressive stuff. Well, my feeling was is I mean, back then we had to learn little bits of everything, but you kind of gravitated towards the music that seemed most comfortable and natural to you. And for me, that was again music with a little bit of a rootsy feel or a slightly funky blues feel, and uh, played in some disco bands back then too. And I had a little bit of jazz training and a little bit of of this and that but i always believe that you um you play your best music with the kind of music that you experienced over you know 10 years or 15 years when you were young and for me that was mostly club bands playing a combination of blues country funk and a bit of rock and roll so all those things kind of rolled into you know what they call a roots americana kind of style of drumming so these studio gigs would lead into you playing with them on tour? Um, like, would you be part of the touring band? Or That's a good question. They, they did in some cases. I played live with the Arrows quite a bit. And with Chris Hall, the very first artist that I recorded with. 
And uh, there was that band from Winnipeg. They flew me out, and I was out there for three months playing with them. And uh, but then, unbeknownst to me, there were politics going on going on in Toronto, and a guy who I had met from South Africa who loved this band I was in, B.B. Gabor. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah. Great band, and that was a pivotal gig for me, huge, because they were so popular in Toronto, and I really wanted to get in that band, and I found my way into that band. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And uh, this guy named Paul de Villiers, who uh, ended up producing Mr. Mr., very talented sound man from... Uh, from South Africa, he was Anne Murray's sound man, and he would come to see us, B.B. Gabor, because he loved the band. And unbeknownst to me, he had told Anne Murray's musical director that if they ever needed a drummer, that he'd found someone in town he'd like to hire, and that they should think about hiring. That was me. And so, while I was away on the road in Winnipeg, something did happen with Anne Murray's drummer. I guess he left or quit or whatever. And they had decided to call me up, but I didn't know that yet. And when I got home from that tour, he called me the next day, and it was pretty funny. He said, uh, oh, would you be interested in maybe checking out Anne Murray's gig? And I went, wow, I don't know much about her music at all, except for Snowbird. But he says, oh, it's a great gig. You know, she travels in the States. You know, you, you, you'd probably enjoy it. It might go for three or four years. Who knows? Maybe longer. And uh, so <laughs> I auditioned, and I barely got the gig. I mean, I almost, no, I didn't audition. I didn't have to audition. He got me the gig, but I almost lost it because I, I showed up with rock drums and I was kind of late and they were, God, who is this guy? You know, because I was still kind of in the rock and roll band kind of mindset. It wasn't so much, they were so much more professional than I was. So I learned in a very quick hurry how to, how to get my act together, but I barely made it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious as to the guy who's playing with, B.B. Gabor and, and more of a rock feel. Mm. What I, I know it's a paying gig, but other than that, what was the impression of playing for somebody like Anne Murray, who would have been more, I guess, M.O.R. or whatever, middle of the road, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had to, uh, you know, growing pains on that gig, too. I mean, the things that saved me there were I had done a couple of country rock gigs and some disco gigs, and so those were just all feel gigs. And I think... Her music um, was a little bit uh, more maybe AOR um, or how would you say uh, easy listening mm -hmm. with a bit of a country tinge to it. And that music is all about feel and it's all about laying back. And, and I, I was, you know, reasonable, uh, reasonably comfortable with that. But I, I got, I had to, another learning curve with her, you know, there were styles of, of music that she did that I hadn't ever tried before and I had to kind of pick it up on the fly and I didn't actually study it so much I just kind of did it my own way a little bit and so maybe that was good maybe that was bad but I just sort of felt it and I just kind of and you know if, if I had to if I had to go back and listen to some of the records I would do that but we all kind of ended up doing it a little bit our own way and she she was cool she didn't mind but she was another great mentor for me she would give us all kinds of instruction and if something wasn't right we'd hear about it I'd hear about it tempos or the feeling she taught me so much about how to play better and play with a better feel how like when you say that I don't know what what that would mean like how how does a drummer 
play with a better feel. Can you give me an example of how she could tell you to play it better? Yeah, well, there's ways. I mean, drummers um, are known as timekeepers, but everyone in the band and the singer, if they're good, they're all great timekeepers. And and so the drums, and the drums are there to kind of keep everybody uh, on on the on a similar plane. But um, I think what happens is when you're working with such talented people like like her and the guitar players she worked with they have a great feel so they play the time but how they interpret it is is very important to them so you know if i just went in and played strict time in a waltz feel it might for her feel very very boxy or straight and it might make it let make it less comfortable for her to sing to so she would tell me sometimes when i was young she would say you know this waltz it has to kind of lilt and she would explain it and she would kind of move and she would sing and I'd listen to it and all of a sudden, you know, not right away, but then you start to get it and you go, I get it. And then you'd get it and she'd kind of look at you and go, yeah, you're getting it. That's good. Now, she's a Canadian legend. Yeah. And so I presume that when you start playing with her, you're, you're playing at a level that's a couple notches above what you were used to. Well, absolutely. I mean, I listen, to be fair, I worked with with some really great people when I was young and I was very lucky to, but her singing was on another level for sure. I'd never heard anybody sing like that. I met the first day of rehearsal, I just couldn't believe it. It was so fantastic. And and what struck me it was so thrilling was when I was playing and I could hear my drum groove actually in sync with her vocal. I thought, wow, that's a huge, huge accomplishment for me. That's a great victory because she's so good. If I can even keep up i'm i'm in pretty good shape here so i learned um over the years playing with her her singing and her phrasing it it helped me become a much better musician it surprised me that you said you follow the vocals tell me about the approach that that takes as a drummer well you know um the first rule i guess is, is that if you're working with a singer um, and, and the song is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So the music is there to support the song and the singer is delivering the song. And um, if, if the singer is, is decent, and most singers are, they have a really cool way of... of um, you can tell where their time feel is pretty quickly if you listen to the phrasing, because phrases, vocal phrases, are always very rhythmic. They're either off the beat or on the beat or they involve some 16th notes or some 8th notes and they kind of all move around the beat. But most songs you can actually chart out rhythmically what the singer is singing. It's not abstract. And so once, if you decide to listen to the, the phrases that they sing rhythmically and you hear that the 8th notes that they're singing are right about here against your sense of where the quarter note is, you can find that really quickly and all of a sudden you're in there with them and then they hear you and then now it's two people in together mm -hmm. and everybody else is in together as well. So if you kind of ignore where they're singing, you say, well, here's the time, then they are forced to kind of sing with you and, and right. that, that might not be so comfortable for them. They might be kind of, it might be too rushed or it might be right. too slow and they're, they're losing, the, the. there's too much air or not enough. So it's very crucial, I think, to find out where they're comfortable. And you can do that um, just by listening to the first eight bars of the verse. You can figure it out really fast. That's what I think. So you thought you would get this gig for a couple of years, two, three years. Mm -hmm. It lasted a little longer. 24 years. 
And was she working a lot during that time? Yeah. There was one break in all those years. She took a break for a year. And the rest of the time, I think consistently between 90 and 110 shows a year. Wow. Yeah. And, a- you know, I saw a lot of things change in her career, too. You know, when she went, she unfortunately, she lost her, her manager, um, who'd managed her for pretty much her entire career from uh, the Maritimes, Leonard Rambo, and he passed away. Um, and uh, she kept working for a couple of years after that, but it was just so difficult for her to do that. And Bruce Allen had been watching from a distance, and he he offered to manage Anne because he had a plan. He had a vision for how she could further her career to the next level beyond where she had been. And so when he took her on, he changed the way we worked. We still worked the same number of shows, but we take much longer breaks between tours to give her a rest, and we take we had longer tours, and it was a really exciting time. I can imagine, and and I would presume that you're playing at really huge venues. Uh, well, you know, some of them were big, um, and near the end of the, uh, well, not the end, but the last few years of her career, um, by and large, they were soft seat theaters, which were great to play, you know, much like the Sony Center. Mm-hmm. Um, all over the U.S. And uh, occasionally, though, we'd go into a town where we'd play at the, at the arena. At quite a few times, actually. Right. And, or college arenas. And that was exciting. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, and even London, Ontario, we played the arena there. And and uh, back in the day, though, we used to do a run at the Sony Center, five shows in a row. And she'd sell it out every night. And uh, So during this time, were you pretty well just focused on her? Like, when, when you had time off... Did you play with other people and do studio sessions? That's what I always wanted to do because I, uh, I mean, listen, I, it sounds like I'm very you know, disciplined and, and a hardworking guy, but I enjoyed that gig and we had our, you know, I, I, I took advantage. I played golf. I enjoyed myself. But one of the things that I really always wanted to do was to stay part of the Toronto music scene. And so when we weren't playing with her, I had to work hard to let everybody know that I was around because people just assume that you're not around anymore mm-hmm. if you're with a band like that or with a singer like that. So I was playing at Grossman's. I remember one night I played at Grossman's two nights after we had played at Radio City Music Hall in New York with her. And I back into Grossman's two nights later with, with a local band. And it was fantastic, though, because it doesn't change the way you play or, or the way you feel on your drum set, you know, or with the people you're with. Um, so, yeah, and I um, by doing that, I got involved with a lot of different people. Um, uh, and then, of course, the next big person that changed my life was Colin Linden, who I got involved with pretty much the first year I started with Ann Murray. And he always sacrificed uh, anything um, that was coming up for him. If I was on the road, he'd just get someone else to fill in. But I always got the job back when I got home. And he got me involved with lots of recording sessions and with Bruce Coburn and even Jan Arden. I mean, that came through Colin Linden's gig. You know, so many people I've recorded with and played with came from that gig with Colin. And I mean, he was such a local blues uh, celebrity and a superb musician. Mm-hmm. And, but he had his own quirky style of original music. And uh, when he heard about me and we met, I was subbing in for a gig that he had called me for. And I think his drummer was probably going to be leaving anyway. But I got the material on a cassette, and I thought, the gig's on Saturday. Well, I better look at it. 
I guess, and listen to it. And I happen to have some time on a Tuesday. Normally, I would have waited till Thursday or Friday to listen to it. And I listened to it. And I thought, God, this is crazy stuff. It's complicated. I got to write charts. I got to write all this whole thing out and learn it note for note. And when I did the gig, I had all my notes and I was watching them. And, and he kept turning around and I thought, I hope I'm doing okay. But he was turning around because I guess I was catching all the details. And he was very excited about that because <laughs> I actually, and luckily I did my homework because that wasn't always the case. But, but he, after that gig, he said, Hey, listen, do you want the gig? If you want it, it's yours. And I'm, I played with him last week. So <laughs> 32 or three years later, we're still playing together. Did, did you sense anything other than that, but the fact that you were prepared, that, that might you guys connected on stage that night? Well, you know, my theory about that, and I didn't figure this out until about maybe five or ten years ago, but when I look back at all the music I loved when I was a kid, it really had a little bit of a blues bass to it. And I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea. I mean, I love the Beatles. Who didn't, right? You just grew up with them. But there was something about the Stones that I liked more, but I didn't know why. And I loved Led Zeppelin, and I loved Hendrix, and I loved Cream. And those are the four big bands for me. And now when I look back and listen to them, they're blues bands, every one of them. Mm-hmm. Although they were all from England. And I mean, my, my ancestry is all British from, you know, two or three generations ago, I guess two generations ago. And they kind of interpreted the blues music they were hearing, as we all know, and made it their own. They made it unique and different. And I didn't even know that a lot of the stuff that Led Zeppelin did or that Cream did came from Chicago. I, I just thought it was theirs. Right. I loved it. When Colin told me Crossroads wasn't a Cream song, I was crushed. <laughs> he said, are you kidding? That's from Chicago. It's pretty amazing when you hear the original to what it, what it became, like how I, that happened. It is amazing, you know, and the Stones too. I mean, half of the stuff that they, they do, and I started when Colin introduced me to all this amazing old blues music and i mean he was also a huge mentor for that too he 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 said to me clear out he says you're gonna have to learn this stuff and listen to it because you can't really keep playing with me if Mm -hmm. i mean you can but i i'd much prefer it if you really pick this stuff up and study it because it's it's everything that i am and i said well god thanks for telling me that because you're turning me on to this vast um encyclopedia of music that I hadn't even known about but obviously I relate to because of all the bands that I loved when I was a kid from England. But, but tell me about drumming blues drumming because it's blues is an interesting form of music in that it's not very it's not complicated in, in the technical sense but when it's not played well it shows very quickly and so and I, I guess if anything it, it, it relies greatly on feel but as a drummer how do you approach playing blues and making it convincing and making it work? Well, that's a great question because, you know, the the hardest thing to be convincing about at all in blues is the fact that, you know, if you're a, a Caucasian kid from Toronto and Canada, how can you really say that you're, you're a blues musician? I mean, it's odd. It's awkward. Mm-hmm. So knowing that, I mean, that doesn't, didn't, doesn't ever deter me. I, I would never put myself down and think that we can't do it. But when I was very young and I took my first blues gig subbing in with John Bride and the Cameo Blues Band at the Isabella Hotel, I knew I was getting into some some 
the thick of it because these guys weren't messing around. I'd played blues grooves in the cover bands I'd been mm-hmm. in, the show bands, but I don't think I'd ever played it right. And so John Bride really helped me out when I was, and he would look at me right on stage and he'd say things. He'd go, back, take it back. And he'd go, a little forward, four on the floor on the kick drum. Okay, shuffle that snare drum, left hand. He'd say all this stuff, to, and I'd be watching him like a hawk. And, and then I'd go home and work on it and then play along with records. I, I still do that. I did that today. And, um, and really, I mean, it was just admiring, first of all, local guys and wanting to not hang them up, wanting them to be comfortable on stage. So, and with Colin, same thing. There were certain things he would, he would have to take me aside and teach me and say, you know what? That groove has to be more like this. You gotta, you gotta figure that one out. You know, we gotta work on that. You gotta listen to it and work on it. Okay, okay. Now, is that a difficult thing to do to work on that groove or whatever? It's not difficult. The difficult part is if you're not sure whether you have it. So when you have someone give you some help, and then they point you in the right direction, then you know what you've got to do. You got to work on it. And I mean, you know, part of it is your own sense of musicality and your own feel and your own relationship to what you're hearing but if you really pay attention you can pick things up i mean there's a limit to everybody's abilities i can't claim that i can obviously that i could learn to play it the way they did or the greatest (laughs) blues drummers did i i mean there are certain fields i play better than other fields but i do try my best with every blues feel and i try to research you know what they are and where they came from and for me the best way to do that is to play along with them too and try and feel the muscle memory like on the drum kit when i'm playing along with a texas shuffle when i first heard it i could barely play it and i thought why is that so weird and so difficult it's because it's just a shuffle but it's the relationship of the time to the guitar and the tightness of it that i'd never experienced before so i had to play along with that record dozens of times just before I could even feel comfortable playing it. And do you know when, when you got it? Oh, you can tell. You start to get comfortable with it. And then, and then it becomes joyful. It's not struggle anymore. And you're like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, you record yourself and you hear it and you kind of go, hmm. Well, in my head it was a little better than it sounds, but it's getting there. But then I, I can pull these things out now at a gig. You know, if I feel like let's do it more in a Texas way you do that and the guys on stage respond you know if they know it too they kind of go oh wow or kind of go on that route on this one and if they don't then you can kind of guide them and there are some people i've now that i'm the old guy and i've been working on it but it's the work is never done but i definitely will guide younger musicians if, if they need it i'll say to them afterwards you know maybe this one could be a little more like this or like that and they might be going home and saying the same things I was saying to myself after Colin talked to me or John Bride talked to me. But guitar players, I mean, I really have a relationship with guitar players. And, and you can play with some great guitar players. So I still like, do. Yeah, oh yeah. Can I'm we so... talk about Bruce Coburn a little bit? Yeah. So tell me about working with him. Well, you know, I, I always loved his, uh, his hits. I didn't, I wasn't one of those guys that... Um, can honestly say that I was a, a guy who knew all of his catalog. And there are those people. Mm-hmm. But stuff like Tokyo and, of course, Wonder When the Lions Are and anything that was on the radio by him caught my ear. I loved it. So when I heard that there was an opportunity to record with him, I was beside myself. It was crazy. We were very, very excited. And 
that opportunity came through Colin Linden. He had heard our band with Richard Bell and he knew about us and he liked it. Um, and I think he was looking for something different, something a little rootsier, because he has some good blues roots in him, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. He doesn't display them very often, but when he does, he's amazing. So he had made a Christmas record by himself to a click track, and it was it sounded great. And he thought, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to get Colin's band to play on it. And so he hired Colin, and we went to Phase One in Toronto, and... Um, we played along with Bruce. We didn't play with him because he'd already done his parts. And uh, it worked out really well. And and I think all of us had had enough studio experience at the time to pull that off. And he was just in the control room kind of overseeing it and producing it and giving us some ideas and enjoying the process without having to perform. And it was great for us. We got to meet him. And it was less intimidating because his stuff was already down. And we had a chance to learn it and listen mm-hmm. to it. And, of course, that record still gets played today, so that that was such a cool thing, you know. And then the next thing that happened, which was really crushing for me, was he called me to tour with him with Colin's band. And I was still with Ann, and I had to say to him, look, this is the hardest phone call in my life, but respectfully, I have to say, I can't, I can't tour with you. And he was cool, you know. And he called me again, and I had to say it again. And after the second turn down, I said to myself, okay, I can never do that again. If he ever calls me again, I have to say yes. And he did. But if you were still with Anne, I mean, I presume that there was... What happened was, there was a few things. We, I got to record with Bruce again. That was the biggest thing that happened was the Christmas record happened. That was great for all of us. Well, then he had come up he wanted to do another record called The Charity A Night, which was amazing. And he hired this bass player named Rob Wasserman. I guess he'd played with um, some of the Grateful Dead guys Mm -hmm. from San Francisco. And I think they'd hired Jim Keltner as well to play drums. And Jim couldn't do it. And I think Bruce and Colin was co-producing it and Bernie, they all decided, well, you know, God, Gary lives right here in town and Bruce is comfortable with him and Colin's obviously comfortable with Gary let's call him up and I couldn't believe it so the next thing you know I'm at Reaction Studios in uh, Toronto um, with Bruce this time playing live and Gary Burton on Vibes and Rob Wasserman on bass and me and I just completely was out of my mind I had to really really pretend that I wasn't freaked out about this in front of these people I just had to really be cool but inside I was dying I was driving Gary Burton back to his hotel and just, it was freaking me out. But it turned out to be a great record for Bruce, you know. And so he again would ask me to tour with him and I had to say no. Where I got a chance to say yes was when Bruce Allen took over from, from um, or, or became Ann's new manager and he changed the way she toured with longer breaks in between. I was able to work it out with him and with Ann where if the tours sort of intersected and there was a week where maybe she had to get somebody, she would do it. She didn't like it, but she did it. And I give her so much credit for that because it gave me this opportunity. And I'm still working with Bruce today, so it was a beautiful thing that happened there. Had I said no again, I think I would have been, that would have been it. So I played on, God, almost every record he's made since then. And I'm so lucky. I played on records 
that uh, one that Colin didn't produce called Life Short Call Now, which was great. And then the most recent one, Small Source of Comfort, it's a fantastic record. So yeah, very lucky, super lucky. And tours too. I have to ask, like it just sounds like, you know, you're obviously a very talented musician and you, you, it also sounds like you also work very hard and you continue to do so, so that you're constantly learning. I just wonder if you've ever had a tough times. Like, like it just sounds like your musical career just kind of took off and it just, I mean, you've had some great opportunities, but was there ever a time when things were not good? Well, I mean, you know, in terms of work, to be honest, I, I've always worked and uh, there have been lean month here or there. But um, I think when Anne stopped touring, I was pretty, pretty nervous because we, we had this extraordinary gig that was very rare in this country. I mean, an artist that was so popular in the U.S. that could play consistently year after year. Mm-hmm. I talked to so many musicians who do have tough times. Talented, no matter what level of talent, it can be very difficult to work full-time in music, especially now. And uh, so that gig was amazing. So when that gig ended, we were definitely concerned. And uh, right away, I got a gig with John McDermott, touring and I also got a gig with Tom Cochran touring and so maybe for about three or four years after she stopped I was still touring with main artists mm-hmm. and who who had a lot of work but lately to be honest that's changed so now I'm not touring as much with any marquee artist and I don't know that that many people are it's right and, and the, those that are probably much younger and they're out with the younger mm-hmm. acts that are really happening now, I have a friend in Mississauga who I grew up with in high school who's still touring with Gordon Lightfoot and he's been with Gord I guess since 1982 and he's still playing all the time with him now that is unbelievable to that me. is but 22 years of Land Murray is pretty amazing. 24. 24. Yeah, and it was superb and totally spoiled. And so rough times, not really, not compared to the musicians who really sometimes have to struggle. And I would worry about that because I never wanted music to be something that I, I had to struggle through and have to play things that you don't like just to make your paycheck because then you start to you start to resent even music mm-hmm. i never wanted to resent music so i had already decided when i there was a little bit of a tough time before i got Anne's gig and i thought you know i'd rather just play for for fun in bands and get a job than actually hate the gigs i do just to make a living and and be away all the time so but that's not really happened I've been very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. But the other thing I've observed about you, um, as I just kind of creep, look around from behind, but I think you're one of those people who just loves music. And I see it. I see it when I saw you at the Rex a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, and you're playing with Jerome Godbu. And Mm. there's a certain amount of passion that you seem to have for music and the joy. And I've seen you play many times with Colin and with Paul Reddick. And there's... There's the sparkle in your eyes. You could tell that this is not just a gig. This is something you love to do. How do you how do you keep that? How do you maintain that? Uh, I I I, uh, I I don't really um, uh, have to work at maintaining that. I, what I like to work at maintaining is is keeping myself in in good shape so that when those opportunities happen, that I will enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. Because I think if I was out of shape or you know, I hadn't been doing it for a while. 
I wouldn't enjoy it as much and, and there wouldn't be as much joy. So I'm always trying to be ready. So when that call comes, you know, even just a call to play at the Rex in the afternoon, that's a big deal because it's like the Rex is amazing and people are out there to have a great time. And if I'm in shape, I know that when I walk in, I mean, I'm always a little bit nervous, but when I walk in, I'm thinking, this is going to be fantastic. How can it not be, right? Unless you're obviously with a band that's completely unrehearsed and nobody knows what right. you're doing, but that band's great. So I really, two, two things. I love to play. I like to stay in shape. And I like to play with people where we know each other and we know what we're doing because that's almost guaranteed that we're going to have a good time mm-hmm. and, and that people will have a good time. Can we talk about keeping in shape? I mean, I don't know if people realize that obviously playing drums is probably more physical than anything else, but what does it mean to keep in shape? Well, I, you know, for me, I, I think I look at it, that's why I relate to tennis and golf and, and I, I, not so much hockey and, and football, but tennis and golf for me are important because I look at those athletes and, I mean, they're true, true athletes. Drummers aren't, uh, in my opinion, but dr- drummers, you know, just like anybody who has a physical kind of a, a, a gig like that, you, you should keep yourself toned and stretched so that you don't get injured and so that when you're up there, you're not struggling mm-hmm. physically because the music comes from inside and you're, you're basically your physical body is, is helping you create the music that's in your head and in the joy and the things that are going on and the conversations you have with the other musicians on stage. So like I say, if, if you're loose and you're stretched and you're in decent shape, those ideas come a little easier. You're not struggling through them. And you can really have decent conversations musically with your bandmates, you know. And you're still doing a lot of studio work. Yes. That's what it seems like. And you're working with Steve Dawson and Colin. and mm-hmm. You're doing a lot of stuff in Nashville, I believe. Mm-hmm. So do you, is there a preference or do you just love it all? Like, Would you prefer to be touring live or is the studio work, does that give you the same kind of satisfaction? I mean, I think the balance is really what it's all about because uh, when you're in the studio, I think you still have to think of yourself as performing, you know, and mm-hmm. I've heard tracks I've played on where I was a little bit too clinical or careful and, and the buzz maybe wasn't there. You know, it was a good performance, kind of accurate, but but really when you hear your favorite records, what you're really hearing is you're hearing people play. It's just that you're hearing them play in a recording. At least that's those are the records I love, you know, and that's why people I think like Colin are so uh, organic. He loves these amazing blues recordings. But these people were in there playing, you know, that they, mm-hmm. they were really performing and and talking to each other. And, and there was some heat, you know. <laughs> Tell me about Honky Tonk Woman and the drums in that. Amazing. Well, the, the, just the, the, the way it starts with that cowbell. And it's funny you should say that because that's a song that kind of pretty much set the tone for me for my whole life in, in drumming was that song. It's the first song I played when I played my high school audition uh, on the drums. I think I played that song. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's just so, I mean, there's just something so righteous about that drum beat. You know, it's perfect. Because <laughs> not, I don't think a lot of people give Charlie Watts credit for what a, an amazing drummer he is. Oh, he's great. And I mean, if you read Keith Richards' book, uh, he talks about how they they uh, they were after him, mm-hmm. and um, because he was a jazz drummer, and they could tell he was better than everybody else, and but there was something cool about him, and they wanted him in the band. And when you think about it, they were loving blues music, and 
you know, jazz obviously is more sophisticated coming from the blues and they could feel his swing. And But, you know, Keith had a great line too. He said, we got him in the band, but we had to teach him how to rock and roll a little bit. <laughs> But he was, you know, he was, he was, I think, better than, than those guys were. And, and they, they knew that. And he was really important for them. Yeah, and pretty well defines the sound, right? And like, his feel, I mean, come on. If I could play on anything that felt that good, I, I'd probably hang it up. <laughs> and the success of the Rolling Stones, their records feel great. They mm -hmm. really do. And Charlie's a big part of that. No kidding. Now, would it be fair, like, in your vast library of work that you've done, and it's an impressive list, I mean, do you have favorites or just they're like all oh, your kids? Oh, no, I mean, I, I definitely have favorites. And, uh, you know, some of the, like I say, the uh, you know, Charity and Night is a great record that I was very honored to be on. And uh, even that first uh, uh, Alana Miles track I played on on her big record, when I heard that recently, I thought, well, it's, it's a, I remembered it being a great song and a, a really good session and it sounded great to me even now i really enjoyed mm -hmm. hearing it back so there's things like that and you know some stuff with ann murray um yeah so and certainly colin linden's records uh we've had great great record um recordings with him and and various people richard bell and blackie and the rodeo kings we've had some great records mm -hmm. i think that one uh, kings of love is one of my very favorite records that we've ever made for sure we made that at the tragically hip studio when I should, this is this will be my last question, but tell me when you visualize, I guess when you're in your basement practicing and you're visualizing that big auditorium or that place, that perfect place, what are you visualizing? Well, the first time I ever did that, um, that I really, really needed to do that, and it was important I did it. I was like, you know, I'd played with Anne Murray in some big places, and, and that was, you know, it was almost just so new and exciting, so um, I wasn't so concerned about that, but... When I um, took on a gig in 1997 with Jan Arden, and I was allowed to sub out of a little bit of Ann's uh, shows for that, um, it was so. You know, after all those years with Ann, all of a sudden I'm playing with this artist, you know, Jan Arden, who has hits, and there's going to be all these, you know, young and pop people. And it was a gig at Massey Hall, and I don't think I'd ever played a big concert there before. And I thought, God, how am I going to how am I going to get through that? It's a new band. It's this new artist, and we're in my hometown at Massey Hall. So, I just kind of for about a week, I just pretended I was playing at Massey Hall with her records. I played along with every one of the songs we were going to play on her show with the record, and I kind of just kind of turned the lights down and pretended I was at Massey Hall. And when I got real comfortable with her music, I thought, okay, I'm ready. I can be up there. And if ever I get nervous, just remember how it felt at home because I'm playing the same songs same groove same drum kit no problem You're still nervous as hell but it was a little less of a problem <laughs> wow it, it's been such a pleasure talking to you thank you very much for doing this I really appreciate thank it thank you so much a real thrill I'm really, really honored to do this thanks very much thank you, thank you.